Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Christ in power, resurrected as we will be when he comes. Amen. You believe that? Well, I encourage you to turn in a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using one of the uh, red Bibles that are available on the cart back there, uh, it's on page 961. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are going to look at verses 12 through 34 this morning in the ministry of the Word. Let me just pause for a moment and ask God's blessing and help. God, we need your help today. The psalmist said, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who is the maker of the heavens and the earth. God, you are our creator. You are our redeemer through Jesus, and you are our sustainer. And we, your people, are sustained by every word. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from you. And we pray and ask for your help with this particular word this morning. And I pray that you would show us the great hope that we just sang about. That as Christ will be resurrected, so will we when he comes. And God, that that might not just be some uh, grand idea out there, but that it might have reality in our lives today. Would you do that work in our hearts, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to imagine that you're going in for surgery tomorrow morning, and you arrive at the hospital, and you get all checked in, you're there early, they put on one of those things that is generously called a gown uh, on you, and they've got you all prepped, and you're about to go in for surgery, and the doctor says, listen, I'm going to give you a choice. Which would you prefer? I'm taking out one of your internal organs. Which would you prefer, your brain, your heart, or your appendix? Brain, your heart, your appendix, which would you like removed? Which would you prefer? Now, after you got done saying, I'd prefer a doctor who didn't talk like he had his brain removed, uh, I am sure that if you still have one, (laughs) you would prefer to have your appendix removed. That's where I would be on that one. I mean, an appendix, by definition, is expendable. You don't need it. You don't have to have it. It's not absolutely necessary. It's not mission critical. That's what an appendix is. That's why we never read that stuff in the back of the book. It's the appendix. I don't need it. I'm a book geek. I actually do read the appendix. So, But my heart, my brain, these are mission critical. These I have to have to live. They're absolutely indispensable. Without them, there is no 
life for me. Now, in the text that we're going to look at this morning, and and going back to the text that we looked at three weeks ago on, on Easter morning, at the beginning of chapter 15 here, in this text, the Apostle Paul is writing to some Christians, that's what he calls them in verse 12, some people in the church who are disposing with putting aside, treating as optional something that is absolutely indispensable to the Christian faith. And we talked about that appropriately right here on Easter morning, because that reality is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the first 11 verses of this text, Paul makes it clear that the resurrection of Jesus, which he's going to show is linked to our resurrection, just like we sang, when Jesus comes, is absolutely indispensable. Look again at the beginning of chapter 15. I would remind you guys, he says, of the gospel that I preached to you. Verse 3, this is what I delivered. I delivered to you. This isn't my thing. It was something I was given, and I had this God-ordained role to deliver it to you all. And here it is. It's of absolutely first importance. It is the gospel, and it has two main pieces of first importance that Christ died for us in accordance with the Scripture and that He was buried, piece number one. Other side of the coin, piece number two, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that He appeared to people, to witnesses who saw that He was raised. The, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the resurrection on the third day, the two sides of, of the indispensable reality of the gospel. Paul says, this is what I delivered to you, and you can't, you can't tear these apart. You can't act as if one of them, namely the resurrection, is just an appendage that you can throw in the scrapbook or take and leave. You believe it? That's good for you. I don't necessarily need it. Paul says, uh-uh. No way. This is the full gospel. It is of absolute first importance. And this morning, as we now move into verses 12 through 34, the Apostle Paul is going to show us how that, that, that mind-boggling, I mean, this is, this is really high theology when you think about God raising His Son Jesus from the dead. There, there have been other people we read about in Scripture that were raised from the dead, right? Including people that Jesus raised from the dead. They were raised to mortality. They all died again, physically. Jesus was raised to immortality. He had a physical body. He still has a physical, resurrected, perfect body like we will have one day. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I can't help it. And and no one's ever been resurrected like that. It is mind-boggling. How does that work? I don't understand it. It's supernatural. It's huge. It's so out there. And yet the Apostle Paul is going to show us this morning how absolutely practical the resurrection is for our daily lives. That it has practical implications for right now, today. And that's really the aim of this message because that's the aim of the passage that we're looking on this morning is to show the, the practical implications of Jesus' resurrection. It's not just way out there, heady theological stuff. But the aim is for each one of us to see how Jesus' resurrection makes a difference for us right now. So let's ask the so what question. It's good to ask the so what question when we come to Scripture, isn't it? We read something that's true in Scripture, and we need to know, so what? 
what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Well, three movements in our message this morning that go with the three paragraphs in the, in the English uh, translation here of the Bible, one point for each, for each movement, beginning with verses 12 through 19, thinking on this heading, what difference does the resurrection make? Without the resurrection, nothing has changed. Without the resurrection, nothing has changed. Take a look at verses 12 through 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and, and Paul just made his point up there in verses 1 through 11, right, that this was the gospel I proclaimed to you. He's not asking if, he's saying basically since. This is the message that was proclaimed to you. It included Christ raised from the dead. Now, if, he was going to go to kind of into the hypothetical mode here. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There, there he's talking about the future resurrection of believers. How can you say that? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Paul works through this with, with really watertight logic in this first paragraph. He presents the problem. The problem is some people. You just don't want to be some people in the Bible, do you? I mean, you don't want your legacy to be in the Bible that I was that part of that group called some people. Paul says, there are some among you, and probably prominent people in the church of 1 Corinthians, or this would not be the issue, it clearly was. Uh, Paul had heard about this probably. We read about the group, Chloe's people, who had, uh, were a group that had visited Paul and, and passed on information to him. He had heard about this problem. There are some people in the church there who are denying the future resurrection of Christians. They seem to be affirming the, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, right, on the third day after dying on the cross, the thing we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday on Easter. But they had a problem with the idea that at the end of time when Jesus returns, that the dead in Christ would rise, that all believers who had, had died in the meantime would rise from the dead. Something that Jesus himself had taught about. Uh, the reasons for their denial of the future resurrection of God's people probably had a lot to do uh, with their sort of the, the, the cultural water in which they swam, right? The, the, the way that, that these Greek thinkers thought, uh, the physical body was bad, and the spirit was good. So anything we could do to cultivate spirit is good. Anything we could do to deny the body would be good. Uh, and, if, and dying would actually be a big plus because 
soul separates from body. Body goes in the earth. Soul is in perfect union with Jesus. It's all good. So why do we, why do we want to go back to the physical? Because in their mindset, that was not a biblical mindset, but in their mindset, that was bad. And so there's the presenting problem is that some people in the church are denying that there will be a resurrection of God's people. We see that in verse 12. But Paul says, now, wait a second. If that's true, hypothetical, we've got a really deeper issue here. And he says what it is, repeats it almost verbatim in verse 13 and verse 16. Verse 13, Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead at all, or then in the future then not even Christ has been raised. He says it again in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, believers in the future, then Christ has not been raised on Easter in the past. You see, these two things are, are inseparably linked, Paul. You can't, you can't tear them apart, he says. It's sort of like this past week. We've got this mangy kind of strawberry, or not, well, strawberries too, but the mangiest part was the raspberry patch in the back corner of our yard. And so I took it upon myself to start digging out those raspberry plants. And I found that if, when I pulled the roots of one, it's almost like I was tugging on that other one over there. You ever have that situation with roots and they're so intertwined that you can't separate one plant? Trees sometimes get this way from another. Paul is saying that about Jesus' resurrection, Easter, and the future resurrection of all of Jesus' people. They are so intertwined and interlinked, you can't pull one apart. They absolutely go together. So if you're denying that there's a future resurrection for Jesus' people, then you're denying that there was a res ever was a resurrection for Jesus himself. And if that is the case, verse 14 then there are two inescapable and absolutely tragic con uh, conclusions. Look at verse 14. Here's the deal if that's the case. Christ has not been raised. Paul says that, that our preaching, the preaching of the apostles, is in vain and your faith, Christian, is in vain. And actually in the original, the, the, the word in vain or empty leads in both cases. Empty is our preaching. Empty is your faith. Paul says our preaching is empty, it's vain, it's useless. Of verse 15, he says we're even, we're even really false witnesses because we're saying that God said this stuff. And so we're lying on God's behalf. We're false witnesses. Remember how in the book of Acts that word witness is really important? We were witnesses, uh, God's people said. The apostles in particular, they were apostles because they were, in, in part because they were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Even when Paul goes through the gospel in verses 11 through, or 1 through 11 right before this, he talks about Jesus appearing to the apostles and appearing to others. There was that, that designation. We are witnesses of this. We've seen the resurrected Jesus. And Paul say, no, we're false witnesses if there is no resurrection. But more personal, more personal for you guys, your faith is empty. It's not real. And if that's the case, Paul says in verse 17, you are still in your sins. You're still there. Then what Paul said about them, look back at chapter 6, verse 11. 
Paul has said, you guys, you're, you're, you're believers. You're, you are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. In, verse, in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, Paul uh, lists out a number of, of immoral lifestyles and immoral acts that, that these folks had been involved in, uh, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, practicing homosexuality, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. You were all that, verse, verse 11 says. Such were some of you guys, but... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. But if Jesus hasn't been raised, it isn't true. If that's the case, you and I are still in our sins. Our sin, our heart rebellion against our Creator defines who we are if Jesus hasn't been raised. Yes, Jesus paid for sins on the cross. But the cross and the resurrection go together. How do we know that God received what Jesus did on the cross, what, what these elements represent, his broken body, his shed blood? How do we know that God received that as payment in full for our sins? Jesus was raised on the third day. It's God's stamp of approval. It's God's stamp that says, paid in full for your sins. I accept what my son did. I receive it and I give to him new life, eternal life because he carried out his mission perfectly and now I exalt him to the highest place at my right hand where he will reign and where he can through his spirit grant eternal life to all who come to him in repentance and faith. But if Christ has not been raised then that isn't true. And then those who have died believing in Christ, Paul says in verse 18, they're truly lost. They truly have perished. I think about the many times that I've preached a graveside funeral service and said to friends and family who bury a believing loved one that this person will rise on the last day that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But if Christ hasn't been raised, I've lied to all of them. Because without the resurrection, nothing has changed. Death still has the final word. But, verse 20, but, Christ has been raised, in fact. In fact, Christ has been raised. And this is what gives us great hope, that those who have died in Christ have not perished, but have eternal life. And that we can have hope beyond this life. And hope is the one thing that we human beings really can't live without. And so I have to ask you, friend, do you have that hope. Do you have that hope this morning that the resurrection gives to all who turn from their sin and rebellion against God? 
and turn from that repenting of it and turn toward Jesus Christ in faith, believing that his death on the cross has fully paid the penalty for all of your sins, asking God to forgive you, making you a new creation, and granting you the eternal life that Jesus' resurrection guarantees. Do you have that hope? If you do not, then I urge you to turn to this God this morning through his son, Jesus Christ, in repentance and faith in him. Because if not, any one of us is still in their sins. What difference does the resurrection make? Without it, nothing has changed. We don't have hope. But because Jesus has been raised, you and I, all who look to Jesus in faith, can be changed. We can have salvation. We can have eternal life. And we can have hope. So let's keep on going and talk some more about that hope. The next section, verses 20 through 28. What difference does the resurrection make? Because of the resurrection, everything will change. Without it, nothing has changed, past tense. But because of the resurrection, everything, future tense, will change. Look at verses 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As for by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Paul now in this section goes on to the significance of Jesus' resurrection. And that significance begins with this word that he uses in verse 20 and again in verse 23, first fruits. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, Paul says, of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have, have passed away, who have died. It's interesting how Paul uses that term for death, fallen asleep. It's a very loving, tender, uh, pastoral word that says that death really isn't the end, right? That someone has died in Christ, they have, in a sense, they've died, but in a sense, they've fallen asleep because there's a future and there's a hope. And Paul says that that is made clear by the whole idea of Jesus' resurrection being the first fruits. You remember from the Old Testament that the Israelites uh, were to bring the first fruits from their harvest as the harvest was just beginning, the very first clusters of grapes perhaps that were ripening on the vine and those were to be a sacrifice and an offering to God. And, and the first fruit signified that here is the first, but this represents a whole field or a whole vineyard filled with fruit. This is just a little bit, but there's a whole lot coming in the future. Jesus' resurrection 
his resurrection, but a whole lot coming in the future. And the first fruits also represented a down payment, uh, earnest money, if you will, that this is a sure thing. Here are the first fruits, so you know the reality that there's a whole bunch more coming after this. And Paul says that's what Jesus' resurrection was and is. Jesus' resurrection has inexorably set into motion a series of events, including the believer's resurrection. And Paul talks about that here uh, in, this, in this passage. He begins uh, by ex- his explanation by reminding us how we got into this mess in the first place. Why do we need resurrection? Because death entered human existence. Because it wasn't God's intent. In the very beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, uh, one of the big labels you could have put over all of it was life, vibrancy. Everything was alive and teeming with life and filled with life. And that was God's intent in the very beginning. But then sin entered in, and Paul points to that here. He says, through a man... Through one human being, verses 21 and 22, death entered. And you remember that both Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they were told by God and forbidden by God to eat. But it's Adam who bears the responsibility because as the first human being, he was our our representative, our federal head, if you will. And by the way, if you don't like the representative you had... The truth of the matter is none of us would have done any better than Adam did. But because of Adam's sin, death and decay entered this existence. All human beings were bound to physically die, and at that point, all human beings immediately died spiritually, separated from our Creator, needing to be reconciled to Him. And that's why the Son of God became human. Because we needed a human mediator. Uh, Because a human being had to come and die and pay the penalty of a a real death for us. And so Jesus, as we sang a few moments ago, came as the new and better Adam. And Paul says, through Jesus, all human beings through Adam are, are dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. But all human beings who are made alive, he's not saying every human being will be made alive, but all can be and all who will be made alive will be made alive through the same source, namely Jesus Christ and faith in Him. Jesus is the new and better Adam. Notice that little word in. We had unity with Adam in our sin, but now we are in union, united to Christ. Communion represents that. Union with Jesus through faith links us to be part of the the new humanity, to be part of the new creation that we wait for, the new heavens and the new earth. But through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we are already part of the new creation, already part of the new humanity. And look at what's going to happen in the future. It's a little bit confusing maybe with some of the he pronouns here in verses 23 through 28. You kind of got to get keep track whether he's talking about God the Son, namely Jesus, or God the Father. 
Uh, each in its, 23 says, each in its own order. So res- resurrection is going to happen in order, okay? Jesus the first fruit, and then when he comes, when Jesus returns, then all who have died in him, trusting in him, will be raised to life. And then, verse 24, that will be the end. And Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. But first, he's got to destroy every competing rule, every competing authority and power. And so he's going to reign until his enemies have been put, Jesus' enemies have been put under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation 20 says that. Death is, and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. They are the last enemy destroyed. And God is going to put, and Paul goes to great lengths to say, God the Father has given the Son the power to, to put in subjection all things and rule over all his enemies and then deliver the kingdom to God the Father. But he's quick to say, but when, when I say all things have been put under Jesus, I don't mean to say that God the Father has been put under Jesus. Because the Father is, works under the loving authority of the Son within the Godhead, within the Trinity, but, but he, the Son will deliver to the Father the kingdom after he has returned and after he has put down all his enemies. And here is the end of the story. This is where it's all, all headed and the beginning of the story for eternity. All of this is happening and will happen so that God may be all in all. So that God will have his, his rightful place as the focus of, of all creation's worship and adoration. That God would be all in all. Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection guarantee that that will be the case. Even though we live in a world, we sometimes sing, where the, where the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Jesus is on the throne. Five times, Paul says, in verses 27 through 28, five times he says, all things will be subjected to Jesus. All things will be subjected to Jesus. All things will be subjected to Jesus. All things. All things will be subjected to Jesus. And dear ones, all things includes that thing that you've been anxious about this week. All things includes that thing that keeps you up at night worrying. Listen to the word of God this morning. All things will be put in subjection under Christ your King. Everything, nothing, not a maverick molecule in this universe, no situation in your life. The weather has been in the news a lot this week, and I like sometimes watching these little weather channel clips of disastrous things sometimes. And there was a clip of, I think it was a river in Southeast Asia, and it keeps eroding and it's getting up to these houses. And there's this house, just looks like a fine little house sitting there. And all of a sudden, it just crumbles. It just falls in because of the erosion. I mean, sometimes it feels that way in our lives, doesn't it? I'm, I'm just about, to, it's just about to crumble. It's just about to all 
cave in for me. You know what? I would not uh, be a biblical preacher if I tried to just blow a bunch of sunshine at you and say, I can guarantee it won't crumble. I can't. But God's Word guarantees that even if it does crumble, Christ is the ruler yet. All things will be put in subjection. Jesus has taken care of our biggest issue, and He did it on the cross. And and God said, yes, you did when He raised Him from the dead. His resurrection guarantees it. Our future resurrection guarantees it. Everything will change. All things will be in subjection to Him. And so we can can live through the difficulties in our lives with great hope. And we can encourage one another with this news in great hope. Because of the resurrection, everything will change. But there's also promises here for the present in the final section. Because of the resurrection... God's people are changing, verses 29 through 34. Because of the resurrection, God's people people are changing right now, today. Look at these verses. Let me know if you have any questions about them, okay? Um, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers and sisters, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought beasts at at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning, for some of you have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Paul writes here and mentions, without saying a lot about it, this strange practice in Corinth, perhaps in other places in the church of, of baptizing people on behalf of the dead. Now, how many of you would, would like to know what Paul is talking about when he says baptism on behalf of the dead? Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Um, I, one, of the, one of the really excellent commentaries I've been reading through this study in 1 Corinthians is by uh, Dr. Gordon Fee. And in his research, in doing his, writing his commentary, he came across at least 40, 40 uh, theories on what baptism for the dead might be. Um, so 40 theories, 2,000 years of church history, <laughs> it doesn't seem like we've figured out exactly what baptism for the dead is. So let's not talk about what we don't know. Uh, let's talk about what we do know. I try to do that. Uh, here's what we do know. Here's here's what baptism for the dead most certainly is not. It's clear from Scripture that there's no way to be saved other than personal, individual, conscious faith in Jesus Christ. So by 
by someone who's alive being baptized as a representative for someone who's dead, uh, that's not a way for them to receive salvation. Paul certainly, if that's what these folks were doing, Paul certainly would have pointed that out. And uh, the Mormons have a practice that's similar to that. Uh, this is certainly not talking about that practice either. The most likely explanation is that believers were subjecting themselves to baptism vicariously for a believer, for another person who had trusted Christ, who uh, had died before they had an opportunity to be baptized. That's probably the best, as far as I can tell, the best explanation for this. Uh, please note that Paul is reporting the news here. He's not making the news. Uh, he's just describing what's going on without prescribing it. So we didn't, we didn't miss the mark last week by not baptizing anybody uh, for the dead. He's just telling you what's going on. Whatever the purpose of this strange, at least to us, practice, it does actually fit the whole union with Christ theme that's running through this passage. Think about this. Baptism is the Christian sacrament that, that pictures a, a, the, the initial union with Christ of the believer, that you are united with Jesus in his death as you go under the water, and that you are united with him in his life, in his resurrection, as you come up from the water. And so there, there is that unity with Jesus picture and theme of baptism. So to speak of baptism is appropriate in this uh, passage. And also there, there's this, the idea of being on behalf of another believer seems to really take seriously the, the spiritual union we have with one another that all true believers are not only united to Christ, but through the Holy Spirit, we're united to one another. It's interesting that uh, uh, none other than John Calvin uh, admitted that his understanding of this passage has changed on at least one occasion, uh, that um, he had changed his view on what was going on. But he suggested that, quote, those who are baptized for the dead, those those, those are baptized for the dead who are looked upon as already dead and who have altogether despaired of life. In other words, when we trust in Christ, the old person, the, 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 the connection to Adam, the old in Adam me has died. And I've been raised to new life in Christ. Isn't that what happened? This just right over there, three people were baptized just a week ago from right now. And they were saying, this is what's happened. I've, I've died to the old me. And I've been, I've been raised to new life in Christ. And so I am dead to this world. It no longer has a claim on me. My primary claim and identity is with Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Paul is saying about himself here, uh, beginning at verse 30? Why am I, in, why are we, or why is my apostolic team in danger all the, all the time? Why am I in danger? Verse 31 is a little bit challenging. Uh, he says, I protest, which that also could be translated, I swear, or like I'm making an oath. 
I swear, brothers and sisters, by my pride or my boast in you, which really isn't in you, it's really in Jesus Christ and what he's done in you, I sort of swear on God's work in you that in, in that gospel proclamation, I die every day. He's in Ephesus writing this in verse 32. He says, what do I gain if from a human perspective I fought beasts? He's, he's not talking about animals there. He's talking about vicious people. What do I gain if I, if I fought vicious people in Ephesus if the dead are not raised? If the dead are not raised, I might as well either live it up or just despair and wait to die. But the fact of the matter is, Paul says, I have, I have died to my old self. Look what he says about this in 2 Corinthians, just another page or so perhaps in your Bible. I think he's speaking about the same thing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, which is where Ephesus is. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, this physical life. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. We were dead men walking. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who, there it is, raises the dead. How can we go on, Paul says, how do I go on when in my apostolic ministry there are vicious people? It's like I'm dying every day. How do I go on? I've already died. And I'm alive in Christ. I've already been, been, been resurrected. I'm looking forward to my future resurrection with Him. Why would I do this? Why would I risk my life? If the gospel is, is just a, a human enterprise, forget about it. Paul says to them, don't forget about it. Wake up. Uh, this Greek proverb in verse um, 33, bad company ruins good, um, good morals. He's just saying, you guys are going along with the flow. You're going with the crowd. You're just coasting. Some of you have, are even ignorant to your shame. And so stop living as those who have no hope. Jesus' resurrection, linked to your own resurrection, gives you hope today. Today matters. The guarantee of your future resurrection, it's not meant to cause you to be complacent. It's not meant to, 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 be, to just kind of go with the flow. This world is, is living death. The way that our world lives, it lives based on the fact that everyone knows they're going to die. And they don't know they have a future. But as God's children, we know something else. We've died to that existence. And we now, our life is now hidden with God in Christ. There's a guarantee of that. It's not meant to, to cause us to be complacent, but it's meant to actually fuel our passion for holy living. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 6, connecting to connecting our death to Jesus' death and our resurrection to His. For if we have been united to Jesus in a death like His, we shall certainly be united to Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, raised to immortality. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Friends, obedient living, holy living, is hopeful living. It's living with hope. As we observe God changing us, day by day we grow in hope. And you know what else we do? We risk. If we've already died to this world, we are free to risk. We're free not to be attached to pursuing a life of comfort and ease. We're free to not pursue a life of more stuff. We're free to give our stuff away. We're free to send people around the world to difficult places. And we're free to go to the difficult places in our community with the gospel. We're free to love people sacrificially at great cost to ourselves. We can risk it all. This world isn't our home. We're not attached here. We've already died. We've already been risen with Christ. We're already part of the new humanity. You can say with the missionary martyr Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. We have a new accounting system. The accounting system that Paul writes about in Philippians. And with this, we close this morning. Whatever I gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, and that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, so that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What difference does the resurrection make? It gives us hope. It gives us hope that our past sins have been forgiven. It gives us hope of a future that Jesus will reign over all things. And it gives us hope to live holy lives, lives at risk for the kingdom and for the sake of Christ's glory. Amen. God, we want to know that kind of power, the power of an indestructible life. We want to live the eternal kind of life today. So thank you for reminding us of the reality of Christ's resurrection that guarantees 
our resurrection. Thank you for the reminder that Jesus will put all things in subjection under himself, that he will reign. God, that you will be all in all. Lord, our prayer is to know the power of Jesus' risen life, to know him in his suffering, and so that we might become like him to live the life that he lived and serve those in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing of that hope, Jesus' risen life. about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.